is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan. This is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan. I'm Matt Callanan. I'm a former international DJ and music producer, turned podcaster, filmmaker, founder of the Kindness Project. Would you like your life transformed with new opportunities? Would you like the same status as a book author? Would you like increased sales for you and your business? I've achieved all of this by doing this exact podcast. Now I'm training people exactly like you in a super easy style how to launch a successful podcast. Just go to podcastlikeapro.co.uk. That's podcastlikeapro.co.uk. Thank you. Hello and welcome to We Make Success Happen. Today, with amazing human, Will King. Hello. Lovely to be here. Now, so you're the man behind King of Shaves, King of Shades, and now Code Zero. Yes. So Will King is me. I shave lives around about 15 billion so far. Launched King of Shaves back in 1993, a couple of years before the internet became a thing. (laughs) Bought shave.com for £18. So that was a good spend of sub 20 quid. How much do you reckon it's worth now? We had offers of about $2 million about 20 years ago. Really? But it did wow. mean we didn't have to spend very much at all on SEO, search engine optimization, for many, 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 many years. So You must have been tempted, though, um, and just buy something else, do you think? <laughs> oh, we've got quite a few domain names, yeah, I okay. have to say. There was, back in the day, a, a domain name, Gold Rush, where everybody was buying up dot-coms. But the, we then, of course, had the first dot-com crash in 2000, 2001. So for anyone that doesn't know... Your background and your story, do you want to sort of touch on how you got to launching King of Shaves then? For sure. Well, going back a long time now. So I was born in 1965. I'm 54 now. Born in Lowestoft. Parents were teachers, loved sailing, would have loved to become a professional yachtsman and was pretty good at sailing. Um, not quite good enough to get into the national and then feed into the Olympic level, but was the UK's youngest sailing instructor in the mid-80s at the National Sailing Centre and tried to get a degree in yacht design at Southampton. But unfortunately, on my 18th birthday, found out that I've got a C and two E's for my (laughs) A-levels. What were the C and two E's in then? They were in geography, maths and physics. Well, so, and that changed your pathway, did it? It it, it did. Okay. That I needed to have a um, B and two C's to get into Southampton University. Yeah. So I spent my 18th birthday crying my eyes out whilst legally drinking my first <laughs> pint at the Woodvale pub in Gurnard near Cowes. Mm. But needed to do something. Obviously, I had a gap year booked in... Um, New Zealand or gap six months and then um, six months teaching sailing. So went into clearing and got onto what I thought was going to become a naval architecture course at Portsmouth Polytechnic, which when I was away in New Zealand turned into a mechanical engineering degree course, (laughs) which was flipping hard work. Yeah. Um, My maths wasn't quite at the level it needs to be to do engineering, but I toughed out the three years and got a um, BN Johns 2-2 in in engineering. But my skill level wasn't good enough to become an engineer. And it wasn't really my passion. My passion Mm. was sailing. Yeah. So needed to obviously get some work, having sort of been on the parents' payroll down at Portsmouth Poly and teaching (laughs) sailing and living the life. Yeah. And mum and dad were both teachers and they used to read the Guardian and the Times Educational Supplement. And I read the Guardian and there was a part of it which was about jobs. And there was a job advert in there that basically was for selling advertising space. And it said, call this number. And so I did and got myself an interview. And long story short, started my first job at Haymarket Publications in um, 1987 as a display salesman television 
telephone advertising executive yeah. on £7,000 a year plus commission. <laughs> so had you ever wanted to go into advertising then? Or was no. it just by kind of fluke and chance or what kind of popped up at the time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I needed to get a job. Living in London sounded kind of cool. And, you know, at that time, the job ad said seven, um, it was 12K OTE. And genuinely, I didn't know what OTE meant. So when I rang up graduate appointments, said, hello, Will King calling about the job 12K OTE, what does it mean? They said, well, why are you asking that? And I said, well, I'm interested in finding out more. And interestingly, that sort of telephone dialogue led to me being interviewed. And then actually through quite a lot of competition um, from university graduates, getting a job at Haymarket and worked mm. on Lancaster Gate for Marketing Magazine, selling um, ads over the phone, 200 phone calls a day, get to speak to 10 decision makers, close two deals. But within six months, I closed £100,000 worth of advertising revenue and wow. was headhunted out to join a conference production company. How the hell do you keep your confidence up doing 200 calls a day or just that determination to get through those sheer numbers yeah look so I've always been a kind of a persistent character and I'm quite passionate about what I do I do put my all into it mm-hmm. so clearly there's training so we were well trained keep it simple stupid there's an acronym DIPIDA define identify prove acquire desire action which takes you to the closing of a what's that one I haven't heard that one before DIPIDA so yeah. define identify prove yeah, so you've okay. got to find out what they want. Yeah. Okay. Then you've got to prove you can deliver it. Then you've got to acquire their desire to do it. And then mm. you've got to get the action, which is a trial close. Yeah. If I do this, will you do that? Yeah, it's okay. a binary yes or no. Mm. So you're taking them down a decision tree, ending up with the yes or no. You can't start off with a yes or no. Will you buy advertising from me? No. Yeah. Why not? I don't want to. That's the end of the phone conversation. So it's quite nuanced and we were well trained there. And I put the calls in. We had a Rolodex, had a telephone with a cord attached to the wall and some contacts to call. But um, on my, the day I left, I closed the then marketing's biggest ever advertising deal with the then about to open QE2 conference centre, um, conference centre in Parliament Square. And that was £35,000. And we went out for lunch and I resigned that afternoon because I'd been headhunted to join a, a conference production company. Because when you made redundant that forced you into Mm. thinking about King of Shaves? Yeah, so I had a fantastic time um, working in this event marketing industry. I had a company Mm. car, I bought a flat in Streatham. I was earning £40,000 in 1992. That was a big chunk of change for a 25, 26-year-old guy. And then we had the early 90s recession. And a lot of the listeners won't remember that. Perhaps their parents will, or if they're as age like me now in my mid-50s. But interest rates were 13%. Unemployment was 2.5 million. The UK was only recently recovering from the destruction of manufacturing in the 70s and 80s. And there was a huge recession in the UK. And Mm. big companies like, for example, Braun or Duracell, who spent a lot of money with our company launching new products, £200,000 for a product launch, for example, they decided not to spend that money. So where I had ended up working as a business development guy and then people were being made redundant, then I ended up as the MD, then I ended up making everybody redundant and I was the last person to make redundant me. Oh, nice. So that... And that, and that wasn't, you know, the, because I was bad at my job. It was mm. the fact that the projects had dried up the company had more company cars and employees in it and clearly there was no way out Mm -hmm. and I was upset about that and that's why I decided to do a product-based business which turned into King of Shaves a shaving product and be my own boss Mm -hmm. so if it all went wrong in the future I wouldn't be able to lay blame with people who'd hired me and failed to see what was happening in the world so that was in 92 yeah how did it feel having to sort of lay off people and make people redundant it was super tough Mm. okay i mean i haven't talked about this a huge amount it's in a book i wrote 10 odd years ago but the people i'm making redundant were older than me so in their late 30s to mid 40s they had kids at school they had incomes they're expecting to have they had mortgages to pay and i was like a 26 year old guy and i'm just saying that we've got no work coming in so Mm. i'm gonna have to Fred, I'm going to have to let you go. And 
Nowadays, you have consultancies and different ways of dealing with redundancies, but then it's, sorry, and we're going to have to let you go. Can I have your company car keys, hand back your company credit card? Yeah, it was probably one of the toughest parts of my life. I think if, you, if I look back at it now, I was very, I dealt with it very well, I think. I mean, I certainly went into a dark space two or three months after all of that and felt very sad. But sad as well, like losing a BMW 325i. So I went back to having a bike. But then I'd had a bike before I started work. So then mum um, lent me her Citroën Duchevaux, the sort of like the quirky Citroën car, <laughs> little red little red car that I ran around in. And, you know, I, I didn't have massive debts. I was able to just about keep my head afloat, had to sell some antiques back that I'd, I'd bought to pay some rent. But... It was about probably three to six months of, of soul-searching at that time. It sounds like quite a lot of pressure, I guess, for a 26-year-old to have on their shoulders of all this kind of like having to fire people, then having redundancy yourself and having to sort of go through that whole kind of change. And then I suppose just worrying about the future, what you're going to do next, how you're going to bring in money. There must have been a lot going on in your head. There was. I mean, we live in a different world now where, where a lot of, let's call it, what's going on in, in, internally inside your head or your health or your mental health is it can be externalised and helped with. Mm. Back in 92, there wasn't any of that, really. So mm. I'd been living a completely amazing life that suddenly wasn't so amazing. I'd had to rent my flat, move out of my flat because I couldn't afford the mortgage and needed some rental income to pay the mortgage then, moved into a bedroom and a lot of soul searching and for sure it it wasn't easy but and there was almost certainly a time of shoulders down bit sad bottom lip out what am I going to do but I knew I'd been good at what I'd done and it wasn't my fault that it hadn't worked out Mm. and the whole thing around getting into product was Duracell batteries were still being bought and put into TV remotes and used to watch the telly or whatever. So it was then a question of, okay, if I'm going to do product, what product have I got a competency to look at or do? Again, not many people would know this. At the time, there was um, a famous TV program, Baywatch, which was airing with Pamela Anderson. Mm. And I'd been a sailing guy and I saw there was a brand called Body Glove in that and wetsuits and I thought, oh, maybe somehow I could I could rep wetsuits, I could I could sell wetsuits. And that led to getting a weirdly and a strangely and incredibly a licensing deal to do body glove surfwear. All um, down to Baywatch. All down to Baywatch. <laughs> I like from it. From Bill and Bob Maestrell out of um Hermosa Beach in California and 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 that was good, but at the same time, the King of Shaves business came about because I had quite bad skin. It was always quite rashy and spotty. I'd studied engineering at Poly. Body Shop was a big business at this time, what Anita Roddick was building up with natural and exotic essential oils. And somehow or other, I thought, well, oil lubricates engines, engineers speak, Natural oils must be good for your skin. That's an erotic body shop. I wonder if you could shave with an oil. So then went out, bought a book on aromatherapy, bought some little oils from a chemist, blended them up in the bathroom, understood, for example, that a shaving oil, you have a carrier oil, which is a base oil, mm. and then you have the essential oils, which are very powerful that you've mm. got a dose in to give you good skin benefits. So it's very much read a book, mix the formula, have a shave. It was quite oily. It was quite greasy. It wasn't obviously optimised to the level that we have today. But I didn't get razor burn. From having razor burn all my life to not having razor burn, that was the business strategy. Mm. If it worked for me, it could work for a few other hundreds, thousands. And now we've done over 15 billion shaves in 27 years or nearly 27 years. Yeah, what do you think when you think of that number, 15 billion? (sighs) Well, it's unbelievable, isn't it, really? I mean, I think I'm quite a sensible guy. I, I try to keep my feet on the ground. I'm quite common sense. I've got a good degree of confidence, and it's important in business to have 
confidence. Confidence is quite sexy, not arrogance. Arrogance is bad, but confidence mm. is good. Because it worked for me, it was okay, how can I test it with some other people? So a lot of people didn't have shaving problems, so they'd go, yeah, it's okay, mm. I'll stick with Gillette. That was the only competitor. Mm. But people who did have shaving problems, then they loved it. So then it was off the back of that, it was, okay, I started off Singularity Will with his shaving oil, raised a little bit of money, £15,000 from uh, my best friend from Polly Pat, who worked in oil and gas exploration. So he had a few sp- spare quid and a management consultant. Um, so you're grateful for to Pat then? Pat, yeah. And her, and then my mum put in £2,500 yeah. from her, her retirement fund, but we turned that into half a million pounds within eight years. So able to then give mum and dad you know, quite a lot of money back and dad was able to learn to fly and bought a plane, for example. Mm. Mm. So that belief though in the product, it was, I believed it. Then a lot of people didn't. They go, oh, go back into advertising. You're good at that. Go back into marketing. You're good at that. Didn't necessarily want you to succeed, but I knew it could work if I got it listed somewhere. That turned out to be Harrods. I rang up Mohammed Al-Fayed. So you actually phoned up the owner of Harrods? Yeah. What kind of made you do that anyway? Because people would just think there's no way I could do that. Well, I think when when there's people think no way, that's kind of a red rag to a bull. And I think, you know, joining some dots, clearly I'd had the experience of, of telesales. Mm. So I kind of knew how to get through the firewall of the PA at the start. So Mohammed Al-Fayed and Harrods. Harrods was the world's best-known department store, best in the world. My proposition was King of Shaves. It's the world's best shave. If I can get you some samples and a commercial proposition, would you take a look at it? Send it over to Mr. Al-Fayed. He'll look at it. Now, you know, if you want to get hold of Jeff Bezos, I understand his email is jeff at amazon.com. Now, whether or not you believe that, Mm. it's up to you. I kind of know it's true but you've got to get through the firewall to get to a decision maker there. Yeah. So the Harrods listing was important for the brand, world's best department store, in my opinion, King of Shaves, world's best shave, courtesy of my surname, but never going to get rich out of Harrods. But Boots, yes. So if I felt I could get Harrods, I could then go to Boots, and if I got Boots, I could go to Tesco and Tesco Sainsbury's. And that's how the journey unfolded between 93 and up until, well, really to date. I've heard other people talk about this, go for the big domino in your kind of niche or your kind of area or field, because if you can get them on board, it's a lot easier, like as you were saying, if you've got Harrods on board, it's a lot easier to then go, well, to Boots and go, well, I've got Harrods on board, so you've got to have it, you know, you must have it as well. And so it creates that sort of like almost hype and, and I guess the the need for the other brands because they see someone much bigger than them that's already on board. Yeah, yeah, look, absolutely. So the hardest thing if you're starting up or scaling up a business is momentum. Hmm. It's very difficult to deliver momentum from a, a zero point. And it's much easier if a buyer sees another buyer has said yes and then if two buyers have seen, two buyers have said yes, then four buyers might say yes, because they're, they're in a herd, thinking that buyer surely hasn't got it wrong, and I don't want to miss out, fear of missing out, if something becomes big. And that's what happened with King of Shades. And we launched it. Our two competitors were Gillette and Lack of Awareness. Now, that's not the case now. Yeah. In men's grooming now, you've got dozens or hundreds or probably thousands of brands. You've got very big companies like your Gillettes and your um, Wilkinson Swords. You've got challenger brands now like your Dollar Shaves and your Harry's. You've Mm. got boutique men's brands. And then within there, everybody's got a little lifestyle brand, whether it's a shaving oil, a beard oil, a moisturizer, more recently um, makeup for men, whatever it might be. Mm. But then, and this is, I think, the strategy luck timing, and, and luck and timing is very important. If you didn't use Gillette, well, you basically didn't shave. And <laughs> Gillette didn't have any competition. We're not only able to get it into Harrods, then Boots, then start telling a story and buy shave.com for £18 and have an internet proposition. But then there was a huge growth in men's and lads' mags throughout the 90s into the mid-2000s, FHM, GQ, Esquire, Loaded, Front Magazine, and we had basically from 93 to 2004 a run at the men's grooming market in the UK and internationally 
where it was just Gillette. Of course, Nivea for Men launched in mm. 2000. L'Oreal Men Expert launched in 2004. But we'd already had nine years by then. And I think the only caveat to that I'd say now is you, the internet now, everybody knows instantly what's about or going to happen. Mm. So, for example, if we talk about those sunglasses later on, people know. You know, or you can search Google to find trademarks or patent mm. applications or this or that. Then nobody knew what other people were doing mm. until it suddenly came out from being tiny to being multi-million pound business. And then other businesses started to take notice. It's no coincidence that Nivea for Men launched in 99 because they're thinking, goodness me, you know, we've got a great skincare brand. We just do it for women why don't we do a range for men, Nivea mm. for men? Mm. And that's how it all happened. How important was your story or being able to tell a kind of different story, I guess, to like someone like Gillette? So two things there, I think. First of all, it's the product. Okay, it's the product. Mm. It's always the product. If the product's amazing, people will buy it. If the mm. product sucks, people won't. Or they might buy it once and never again. So that's why iPhone is, you know, behind a trillion dollar market cap business it's why nike and adidas you know are so successful you know porsche is still around with 911s or ferraris these are great products okay mm. if you have a, a shabby product or a product that's good or not nearly as good as the other ones or it's a bit cheaper than or this or that it it will never go through to people wanting to buy it mm. okay that's very very you know, very important. Then the second part is you've got to have a differentiated product. Mm. So why iPhone was so successful is until iPhone launched, all mobile phones had buttons and some of them flipped like the Motorola Razor, the original one, or you had a BlackBerry. And then when iPhone launched 2007, I got one of the very first ones. I got it out of the state, shipped it to the UK, jailbroke it so it would roam on Vodafone. It didn't have buttons. And you go, oh, my God, it doesn't have buttons. This is amazing. Then people say, oh, yeah, but it gets a bit fingerprinty. That was their only criticism. <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, you get a bit yeah. of – and you go, really? Yeah. It's amazing. And it's not really a phone. It's an enabler. Mm. And it's a facilitator. And it's a tool. And it will make your life – and clearly it's transformed people's lives. Mm. So you've got to have a great product. You've got to have a differentiated product. And then there's always got to be a genuine story why you've done it. Yeah. So I've seen so many competitors to King of Shades come and go, oh, I struggle with shaving. I've done a shaving all this. No, no, you. I did this in 93. You've just said, oh, I can do that and tell that. No, it's Vigazi story. It's not genuine. It's not real. There's no backstory. There's no depth to it. Mm. And what you can use the internet for now in a world of fake news is, is you can delve quite deep into genuine backstories and people and what they've done and why they've done it. Mm. And people are looking for truth and authenticity and honesty in a world of fake news and we're not too sure and how this is happening. And when I look back 25-odd years, we were absolutely on the money, but from a very common-sense perspective. Surname King, okay, call it King of Shaves, courtesy of my dad, turned over the King of Spades playing card when we were playing pontoon and said, why don't you call your product King of Shaves? It's your name. And I'm thinking, it's a bit arrogant. He said, well, it's your name. <laughs> so we got that. Yeah. And then it was differentiated with our shaving oil. Nothing existed like that. A tube shaving gel with aloe that was very good in great lubrication ingredients and natural actives. Very different to a can of chemical shaving gel that came out and turned into a foam. And then it was, well, Will King, come on, let's have a beer challenger brand to Gillette. I was the, you know, I was the David to the Gillette's Goliath and pushed against that for the thick end of 20 years. And you've got to be able to push against something. That's why sprinters, when they run 100 metres, they've got blocks they've got to push against. You can't run 100 metres in a record time if you're mm. starting upright and not pushing. You're just going. You've got to push. So we pushed against only one big competitor, mm. market monopoly, very samey product, not made in the UK, not age 26 like me, all of this stuff. And it, I guess interwove that into a story that when people tried it and loved it and recommended it, 
that then became the internet and word of mouth went into word of mouse. And now it's Twitter and Insta and TikTok or whatever it might be. Mm. As long as the product's great, hopefully you'll get a repeat purchase. And that's the key. So how do you stay competitive? Like you talked about in those early days, it was mainly like one main competitor, but now you've got a whole kind of flood of different products and brands. How, like in whatever kind of, product or niche or business that you might be in how do you stay competitive when suddenly you've got a flood of competitors yeah so that's kind of tough okay so i have a saying which is embrace change as a constant if you're always changing you're not going to be afraid of change so we've iterated up for example our original shaving oil that we launched back in 93 Mm. a more advanced version in 98 we've recently well over the years we've been improving the formulation but now We've got 100% natural organic formula for it, which has taken a super long time to develop the ingredients that deliver the same quality shave without synthetics in there. And then we saw a couple of years ago with Blue Planet, we're in plastic, plastic Mm. kills whales, that's very sad. Digging deeper into plastic, it lasts five to 600 years, so it's going to be around 10x longer than I'm ever going to be alive. Yet the products that we are using it to package is used within a matter of weeks or months. So when you look at that, you think this is not so good, really. It's okay for cars because Mm. cars need plastic in them and they'll go into a recycling and they won't ever enter into the mouth of a a dolphin or or a whale. But for sure, things like microbeads, plastic microbeads and scrubs or small shaving oil bottles or shaving tubes or single-use plastic bottles, those will be around. So we... Two and a half years ago, two years ago, started thinking about, okay, if we want to be a relevant, sustainable brand in a new millennium, let's call it 2020, 2030, a purpose-driven decade, Mm. we're aware of climate change emergency, we're aware of the huge issues around the world with regard to the environment, surely if we're just selling a a product as simple as shaving and getting a good shave, we don't want to be then messing up the planet down the track with 70% of beauty products ending up in landfill as they do because we got ahead of that curve and launched this code zero packaging zero plastic packaging initiative this time last year then have made the move to metal with king of shades with our best-selling SKUs coming into that in the next couple of months we're already changing where our competitors are yet to even think about changing and you might argue you know the, the key is to be ahead of the curve but not to far ahead of the curve. Mm. But if you don't take, you know, the time, effort and interest to do it, you definitely don't want to be one of the late laggards who's done it because everybody else has, because that's not good. Mm. So I've always been into changing and innovating and repeatedly question why things are, how they can be better, what I can do as a, you know, a tiny, tiny cog business person, brand, product, in the world of products and stuff. So always, you know, challenging convention and, you know, looking if there's a different way to do things or a better way. So I've got a 20-year-old son, Cam, and I don't want him living in a world of landfill particularly. So one of the relatively easy ways to look at it was to take our shaving gel, which is in a plastic tube, and we sell tens of thousands of those a week, and then take that out of a plastic tube into a beautiful metallic aluminium pumpable dispenser and then refill that with a plastic pouch which uses 86% less plastic and it goes into the same what's called waste stream as, for example, shopping bags. So not perfect, but from going from a 100% plastic, we've gone to 14% plastic. And then the next... Part of that will be then to look at the pump. Can you get to a metal pump? And then when you get to the refill pouches, which, and all of this costs less per shave than Mm. the original plastic tube, can you then get to, let's call it an unplastic refill pouch? Now, this is tough stuff to solve, okay? You'd think you'd have plenty of companies out there working on it, kind of not really, saying they are, but aren't really not. 
The initiative around Code Zero, which is more of a movement than a brand, and I'll explain where we're going with it, mm. was, okay, Let's zero, why don't we try to zero out bad stuff, whether it's sexism, whether it's misogyny, whether it's plastic, whether it's racism, whether it's whatever it might be. And also I'm a sailing guy, and a Code Zero is a sail that you host on a high, hoist on a high-performance yacht to get you somewhere fast. Oh, right, okay, I see. Okay, and yeah. then the little logo, which is a lemniscate, an infinity symbol, reference the K of King of Shaves, but it's also, you'll see, it's not a true lemniscate, it's not an infinity symbol, it ends with the K, so it's not perfect yet. So the first, what we tried then to do was That's to, good design, I like that. You thought about it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of, I think, fabric in and thought into this. Mm. So we then looked at King of Shaves. Okay, why don't we design a lifetime use aluminium um, container? Why don't we then have a yay oldie worldie shave stick in it? But let's formulate that in a modern really cool way and we did a, a, a sponsorship a partnership with surface against sewage became one of their partners and sponsored the plastic free awards so with the code zero project what that then became was a bit of a mission into could we develop the 100 percent unplastic solution you know this is now gender neutral humanity toiletries products and launch a brand that would use this Code Zero packaging, and that's what we'll be doing. And launch a genuinely unplastic, lifetime-use refillable solution. But it's a big change. Because how do you think, or how do you feel, knowing that potentially you're helping change the future somewhat in reducing the amount of waste and, well, plastics and going towards a more sort of zero-waste future? Look, I mean, goodness me, if somebody like me can't do it as founder of a business and he's got a certain reputation and profile of trying to improve on things, and then, as I say, having a 20-year-old son and wondering what sort of world he's going to grow up into, and then knowing that if you set your mind to it, you can change things. It's not easy and it's cost and is costing a lot of money. So there's a mixture of let's call it commercial in there. There's also what's going on in my mind, which is about what's the right thing to do. Surely, if I know inside I should be changing for better forever, I've got to put that into practice or I'm a bit fake. So it's a balance there. I think maybe a little different with me as a, as a brand founder, owner guy versus, let's say, somebody's working I don't know, wherever it might be, at Procter & Gamble, at Unilever, at Nestle or whatever, where they're under big commercial pressure, or Coke, for example. Yeah. You know, Coke's under a lot of pressure to go back to glass where it was before plastic and aluminium came along. But for them, that will crash the profitability of that business substantially because of the costs of doing that. So it, it's going to resist. But sooner or later, people might stop drinking Coke because it's sold in plastic bottles that they don't want to end up killing dolphins. But they do still like Coke. So if I was looking at that multinational business with billions of dollars of revenue in it, mm. of course, you can't crash the economics of the business. But at the same time, you do want Coke mm. to be around for the next generation and the generation after that. Or somebody else will come along and do it, and then you won't be relevant anymore. Mm. As like happened with Apple and iPhone, Nokia had 64% market share of smartphone sales worldwide in 2007. Now it doesn't exist as a mobile phone brand. Although we're just talking about packaging here, and although what we're doing is relatively small potatoes in the greater scheme of things, mm. lots of little leads to lots of large, and we're just one of the lots of little. So talking about success, during your journey then, what are the kind of moments where you felt really successful and what what does success mean to you? Oh, goodness me. So I look back on my, my life, 93, you know, out of work, redundant, all of this, found a king of shaves. First few years, pretty tough, but very satisfying. 98 onwards, I look back every year after 98 and think, oh, that's been a good year, that's been a good year, that's been a good year. The, the changes are constant, embrace changes are constant. I guess highlights in it, 
well, I don't know, building a business and brand up, you know, for example, signing a deal with Ted Baker, the, the fashion brand back in 1997, 98, when it was doing 15 million quid in sales and helping build up a multi-million pound fragrance business there, working with lots of other brands and businesses and products and projects, developing our own proprietary razor, first of all laser and then hyperglide. And although those didn't cut through to the level I needed them to commercially against Gillette. I mean, Gillette basically went 50% off all their products as soon as we launched our razor oh, really? in 2008. Jesus. So we didn't get the commercial result there, but we did sell 6 million handles and we did sell 40 million cartridges. And it was done by a small team in the UK. And the Hyperglide Tech, which was a very clever, just add water and shave, we actually sold that for a lot of money in 20, 2016 not to Gillette, but to another company. So there's been lots of, when we, the team and I have come up with products or projects or ideas, they've typically been successful. We've had a few not so good ones. We had a, a licensing deal with Speedo that didn't work out in 2003 because people didn't really want to buy a Speedo shampoo. Happy to wear the swimsuit or the trunks, but not buy the products that cost the company (laughs) A lot of money, mm. um, but that's long, long time ago now. Do you see that as a failure then, or learning? Learning, okay. So that was definitely a learning, and I guess looking back on it, it's there's a satisfaction of success that so far we've not put too many feet wrong. A lot of my team is still with me 20, 25 years after I started, and now we're on a slightly different, evolving journey around trying to make our brand more sustainable. And in, in, in a world which, which needs to have that thinking there, and if nothing else, we can be a lightning rod for others to also look at it in that way, mm. I'll feel that successful and the job's kind of getting done better than if we weren't doing it. So what do you want your legacy to be then, Will? Oh, I don't know. He came, he saw, he shaved lives, <laughs> he shaded eyes, he did something else, he was a good bloke, he died. Something like that. I think you do look back on the dots you've joined over your life. I mean, in a weird way, it's goodness me. I know how much I hated shaving. I know how annoying it was. We've had, well, hundreds or thousands now, well, tens of thousands of people. You've changed my life. You, my, it's just so lovely. So if nothing else, on a very product level, it's we made product better products made in the UK over a long time. There's definitely then with mum and dad being teachers, I'm quite, I enjoy reciprocity. I do a lot, which people don't know about, under the radar, behind the scenes, this, that, and the other, trying to help people get to where they want to be. And then it, overall, just trying to, you know, he was, he was not a bad guy. He was a good guy. He worked hard. He didn't do bad. And, you know, the, he, he lived a life worth living. And it's been an incredible 26 years so far. You know, un, unimaginable. Why is it important for you to help other people that are a lot earlier in that journey of starting a business or starting their career? Look, I, th- I think, again, it goes back to the parents. So parents were educationalists or teachers, mum and dad. So dad was teacher at my comprehensive school and mum was at the primary school. We were brought up, my, my, two, my two brothers, in a world where knowledge was important and education was important and sharing that was important. And maybe it's in my nature or maybe it's something else. But because I wasn't good enough competitively at sailing in the 80s, I got into being one of the best sailing instructors in the 80s, definitely, and the youngest, definitely. Mm-hmm. And all my mates were Olympic-level sailing instructors. And now they're in America's Cup. And now they're senior yachtsmen. And now they've grown up. But that, that sharing of knowledge out was with me from 14, 15, 16 years old. When you got into you know, having then been made redundant, starting my own business and then seeing how tough it was after I'd come out the tough of the, you know, the 93 to 98, we then had the internet. You then had opportunities opening up. You then had work places changing, substantively changing. Mm -hmm. You could be entrepreneur. (laughs) So you could be a Richard Branson or you could be an Alan Sugar. I mean, those are pretty the binary reference points in the 90s that became accessible and then nobody knew how to do it and then there were outliers like me who had started or were doing it 
And then you're able, if you just in, internalise your knowledge and you don't share it, then that's not so good, really. That's why people write books or they do podcasts. It's like you're doing here. Mm. You're, you're interviewing me in a hope, I guess, I'll share some nuggets or pearls of wisdom that people might latch up on and this, that and the other. And it's a, reci it's a reciprocal thing. And we met mm. in Cardiff through great British entrepreneurs and all mm. of this and that, but you knew the business and brand. And I think if, if you're able or you have a skill in sharing and you have something worth sharing, there's a great satisfaction to that. Now, a lot of people will keep it to themselves. Well, that's fine. It depends what market you're in. If you're in finance markets, you might want to share your secrets to success to everybody else. But if it's a different entrepreneur play, business space opportunity, then I guess you look at it, or I look at it differently. And I think mum and dad, you know, if they said, oh, you just, you know, why don't you just do this or that? And they've taken great pride in coming to some of my talks and seeing what I've done and the lives I've shaped. And I've taken great, you know, enjoyment in seeing some of the outputs of talking to people, especially at schools, mm. where you can change perception and then outcome. So I guess it's if you don't share, you don't learn. It's, it's, a, it's a knowledge recipro reciprocity thing. And I enjoy that. Do you want to talk about King of Shades? Sure. And how that all came about? Yeah, so, I mean, this is a little, I don't know, it was a little side hustle, let's say, and it's taking, it's getting a little bit bigger, but they will think, what's he doing? Shaving lives to shading eyes. But there's a say, there's a story behind it. So in 2010, I went to a car launch with my then girlfriend and now wife, a lady called Tiger Savage. She's a famous creative director. She came up with the example, the Lynx Effect, many years ago. Amazing. Amazing, yeah. And she's worked for Nike and Adidas and British Airways and Virgin and done lots and lots of stuff. But the Lynx is just an easy, easy one to reference. Is she still proud of that? She, she is. I mean, it's, we were talking about that the other day. I mean, we live in a world of Me Too now, but the, the thing with the Lynx Effect was spray more, get more. You know, but you got to keep spraying it on to be attracted. It happened then, back in the nineties. It was boy and girl, but now it could easily be boy and boy or girl and girl. It doesn't really matter. Mm. And in fact, since they went to find your magic, it didn't work out so well. And they're now trying to decide what to do to, I guess, repurpose the links effect for. Yeah, that's a hard thing to try and top, isn't it? It, it is. So we're digressing um, <laughs> yeah. there. So came about this king of shades. Okay, so you think, oh, that's quite funny. So we trademarked it. But what would make it... So they actually wrote under your photo... Yeah, Will King, founder of King of Shades, and his wife, Tiger Savage. So were you um, kind of annoyed first off, or were you actually like, oh, that's... No, it was funny. Well, well, it's, I mean, it was like, that's crazy, because obviously I'd owned King of Shades since 93, and mm. not trademark King of Shades, yeah. or anything else, and Tiger said he must trademark that. And I said, okay, it's quite funny. It's only 180 quid to trademark or 170 pounds. So were you like straight online? Had you already registered like the domain name or no, anything? No, so none of that. No. So we just had to trade. So we trademarked it. And then six years, I didn't do anything with it. And they go, why not? And I said, well, what would make King of Shades sunglasses King of Shades? What would make them, you know, the best? It's so easy to buy product out of China or out of the Far East, and you can brand slap it, what we call brand slap it on the side, mm. give it a logo, come up with some clever name for some lenses, say it's thermonuclearized that or whatever, <laughs> Oakley. Yeah. You know, what they would do, you don't have the backstory of a Ray-Ban. You're not designer like Chanel or Dior. Why would I buy them? And that for six years was a big challenge. So then we went to L.A. in 2016, and we're staying at a great hotel there um, on Sunset called Mondrian, lying by the pool. says to me, are you ever going to do these King of Shades? You've surely got one more brand left in you. And I said, look, Tiggs, it, it's, it, it's kind of not easy. What's going to make them King of Shades? She said, I don't know. You'll sort it out. <laughs> is that almost like a sort of competition set by your wife? Then? Well, not really. It was just like, I think there's a, when, you, when you're advertising credit director, you, you, you know, let's say, so Lynx walks in the door to Bart Bogle Hegarty, yeah? We've got a body spray for men. We want to sell more of it. Nobody mm. wanted to touch it. They wanted to work on Levi's or Audi or something sexy and cool, not some body spray. And, and Tiger took it on and then 
campaigned it and it became a, a meme, it became a thing. Mm. And, you know, incredible. But unless she had the product, she couldn't have done the creative, yeah? And what I, I had no product. So came back to UK and thought, started thinking about it. I've always collected sunglasses. I've always had a lot of sunglasses. And here, like, for example, here we are. Here's a pair of readers, okay? And you take them off. They're a bit wobbly in the frames, even though they're by Iron Man. They shouldn't be so wobbly. And when you're sailing, you, you want your sunglasses to stay on. So when we developed um, some of our products at King of Shades, we'd work with some molding specialists. Mm. And what I wondered in November 2016 was, could you go from one arm, two arms, mechanical hinge, lenses pressed in, lots of bits of plastic, lots of this, to a simplicity of, pur of purpose product where you have a frame, you can switch the lenses in and out of it, you might have different colours within there to colour code it. But more importantly, you can have a sunglass that's self-closed. So when you take it off, it would close down and you could put it into your pocket. And that eureka moment took six years to get to, mm. and it's taken a subsequent four years to put the patents in and the design and the engineering with these launching as King of Shade Shugs, and Shugs is sunglass that hugs. That's just a simple acronym for it. Five letters, got the trademark for it. Mm. But if you're sailing or snowboarding or walking around, you're not repeatedly getting the Clark Kent slip down of your nose, <laughs> which I flipping well do get yeah. with these coming down all the time. So did you actually write that down, like problems, the Clark Kent yeah, sort of effect? Yeah, it's all, in, it's, all in, it's all in the deck. <laughs> but the most, yeah, look, I've, I've, there's a Kickstarter ready to go. I'm not too sure if we'll do it. We've had retailers get in touch. I'm not too sure. People who want to license it have seen the patent on it, all of this stuff. But I think the... The, the, the things that I'm proud of is, you know, coming up with a simple like a K logo, which points into the active part of the hinge. Nice. The ability to have the lenses that you can pop in and out and change so you change your looks by the lenses. But the key thing being they're really comfortable to wear because they're like under armour compression. They're gently pressing in to your face. Can't let's um, have a go then. And, and... A lot of glasses, you know, don't they're not they mechanically press in. Fly off the head, are they? Well, let's hope. <laughs> I've got it all so it's wrong. Good, it's going to be I good haven't. for kind of sports people as well, isn't it? Yeah. I guess you were kind of thinking sailing first off. Yeah. From your own personal experience, and then yeah. I suppose you're thinking. Well, anything where you, want, you don't want to lose them, and I think the fact you can pop them around your neck if you want to demonstrate that rather oh, like than that. Yeah, than okay. there. So for women, they obviously normally put them in the hair. But also when you're out sailing and stuff or walking around, they often can get off your head and then you lose your sunglasses. Yeah, it can be an expensive hobby buy, yeah. <laughs> buying sunglasses. Exactly. So so a lot of sunglasses, they're developed around the lenses. But the, to be honest with you, the lenses are lenses are lenses are lens now. You can get amazing lenses. Yeah. I can get access to amazing lenses. But there's not another pair of sunnies on the planet which has this shugging action. And then the product roadmap is then to take them into reading glasses, so okay. spectacles, which you're wearing like these, are, you know, two and a half readers. They're from Iron Man, whoever owns that. I don't know, Foster Grant or somebody, I think. I don't wear glasses all the time. But you then get into frame glasses, and, and what you do want to have is that they last a long time and you don't, you know, break them. And the, in, the intriguing thing, I think, with the shugs is that it's unbreakable, is that you can do that. And you can, can do you that. just explain to the listener then what you've Again, just been doing on the table here? Just extending them out and... Because that would break a normal pair of glasses, wouldn't yeah, it? I won't no, do don't it. do it on your own. <laughs> I, won't, I don't do it with those. But I, so the, 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 I think the thing is with, you know, look, I'm 54, so why are you doing a range of sunglasses? You know, I think, why am I doing the same range of sunglasses? The, you can only do something if it's genuinely better or differentiated or there's a desire or an interest in doing it. Mm. It's taken 10 years from this first trademark photograph. 10 years. I'm astonishing. I, I even can't believe myself. I was 44 when I started doing it. It's taken me 10 years. But 
lots of overnight successes happen over a long time. And as long, you know, as people, I think, when these go into the wild for the testing and the consumer feedback, and I start getting them hopefully on the heads of some um, top-class athletes out there and some people who will objectively feedback, oh, it's not as good as I thought, or oh, it's actually really good. Mm. So they're the latter, not the former. There's a delight there. Mm. And it's not just another product that the world doesn't need. And it's been enjoyable. And then I've been in control of it with the design team, of course. But they kind of look how I want them to look. And that's very satisfying. And I'm sure with you, you know, doing all of the work that you do in film and video and, mm. and even podcasting, this has got a, a feel and an appeal that you'd, you'd like it to have. And there's a great satisfaction when it comes to product about how you, how you engender that. Mm. So before the last question, where can people find you online? Yeah, so I'm on social. I am William King on Twitter. LinkedIn, if you do that sort of thing, it's getting more and more popular. I do get a lot of LinkedIn requests, I have to say, and 99% I don't link in with unless there's a genuine reason. Or a lot of them are very rude, actually, now. They just hey, say, really? link in with me, link in with me. And you think, who are you? I did it, try and add you this morning, so that's well, a rejection. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think so, man. I think and then King of Shaves, um, as a brand, it's uh, at shave.com or kingofshaves.com. And for the Shugs and King of Shades, have a Google of that. You'll find out where that is, kingofshades.co. Haven't got the .com on that. Can't get it, is what it is. But the world's moved on. And then the whole Code Zero area, it's, you know, the sustainability, Code Zero, the King of Shades, all of that is very important. But I'm William King on Twitter will generally get a, a response out of me. And even if you fancy it, willitshave.com will find me as well. No, really? You actually answer that? I do. No, yeah, cool. Right, so last question then. All your friends and loved ones are on this amazing kind of beach. It could be your uh, place down in the West Indies or something. And you've hired this small plane with a little message, or it could be a sort of big message, one of those planes that carries all the, the messaging behind it. And these could be your final words of wisdom. What would it say on that? That message behind the plane. Goodness me. It would probably say that it's on King of Shades packaging forever and ever, ever important exclamation mark. Enjoy in capital letters. I like it. Important. Enjoy. <laughs> Will King, thank you very much. And much appreciated you coming down. Thank you. Thank you very <laughs> much for interviewing me. It's been a real pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Subscribe, rate, and review the We Make Success Happen podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I would really appreciate you leaving us a great review up on iTunes or your Apple podcast app. It means a lot. Thank you very much. I've been Matt Callanan, and I'll see you on the next episode. This is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan.